0: Hello there, I'm just butting in at the start of this recording to let you know that these next two episodes were recorded way back in January of 2020, before this whole coronavirus situation became, well, the situation. So if the content of this episode seems a little bit disjointed in time, it's because it kind of is. Having said that, we're planning to record a third session with Bob to go over some of the responses to Moore's work that are part of this big debate, and to situate these couple of episodes more clearly in the present moment. With all that being said, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Thompson. I'm Bob Newbauer, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time we are, Ooh, we're reading some some real real hefty pieces. Uh, this time um, we're going to be reading some uh, a pair of articles by Jason Moore uh, titled "The Capitalocene," um, and then there's part one and part two. Um, yeah, this, this this stuff is immense. Um, so, Bob, what's uh, what, what, what's what's the gist of this stuff? What's what's this all about, and why are we reading it?
1: Uh, Well, so I think the gist of it, I guess, you could say that probably over the last, you know, fifteen years now, maybe longer than that, uh, uh, there's probably you know, there's been a longstanding attempt to try to relate. you know, a, a Marxist or Marxian uh, understanding of capitalist development and political economy with the understanding of ecological crisis, right? And there's been a few different schools trying to understand, uh, you know, how to think the relationship between society and nature, capitalism and, uh, and uh, ec- you know, ecological problems or environmental degradation. And uh, and to an extent, I mean, Moore is kind of the most recent, certainly the most recently celebrated person to make a major contribution Contribution to that, um, and then there's also uh, debates uh, uh, that he gets into with other uh, schools of kind of green Marxism or in, or or envir- you know Marxist, Marxist Marxist attempting to to think through environmental uh, problems and collapse and whatnot. Um, that some of which he's a little bit closer to, some of which he has uh, in, you know uh, tried to critique in his work, right? And 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 I think so. I think those are the two things going on. Like one is just like how do we think. Uh, how do we think uh, environmental problems and degradation and the climate crisis and all of that in the context of uh, what capitalism is all about, right? And there's has been a long... Line now by fifteen twenty years of mater- fifteen years of material at least right people trying to do that, um, in a sustained twenty years sustained way um, and uh, and then also the fact that there's also just the you know the usual um, academic uh, biting back and forth about the best <laughs> best way to do that the best way to think that through so it's like there's there's some really interesting analysis mm-hmm. on on the line and there's also uh, probably some uh, academic pony racing on the oh, line. Oh, is is that's... there
0: ever <laughs> in this case? Yeah, yeah,
1: it's 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 quite interesting right uh and i find i find both of those things fascinating one i think is politically and analytically important and one i think uh makes for um uh, you know, great popcorn material.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so for the listeners, um, we we did we did partially try to read uh, some of the responses to this kind of work, but um, we've decided to punt those to another session to really, really actually sum them up properly and get them uh, get them into our heads. But there's a fair bit of like you know some kind of weird grudge going on between some of these people. It's it's actually kind of entertaining. Um, so yeah, Kyle, what's what's your what's your take on all this? What's um what's uh, what's what's the angle?
2: Yeah. So I. Came to this with a little bit of background in this kind of eco-Marxist thinking. I'd read some of Foster's stuff, uh, which you know he's one of the the major interlocutors for more. We'll uh, be covering later. Um, I you know I, I'd, I'd listened to some of the debates. You know I'd seen the interactions of Marxists with uh, various like eco-activist groups. Um, But my experience of studying Marxist thought, for the most part, really didn't engage with these questions very much. Um, You know, there's like this sort of odd mention that Marx makes about the relationship to the natural world um, or, you know, various sort of like scientific uh, developments that Marx discusses. Um, But, you know, you read a book like uh, Anwar Sheikh's Capitalism, and it says absolutely nothing about any of these questions, right? Um, And that seemed like a really glaring gap in Marxist political economy uh, to me. Um, And so I was was very uh, excited to read uh, this text by Moore because – Uh, One of the major approaches that Moore takes is to um, closely examine uh, Marx's understanding of value, uh, of the law of value, um, and to connect those concerns uh, with broader questions about the interaction between humanity, capital, and other species, natural phenomena, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's, it's really taking a – taking an approach that is grounded in the core of Marxist thought uh, but substantially broadening that. Um, so I was, uh, I was quite impressed with that, uh, dimension of Morse thinking and it kind of reminded me, although of course Pickering is not a Marxist, uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of, of Pickering's approach to ontology, right? To sort of, cause you know, one of the problems with the Marxist thing I just described is that the ontology is too narrow, um, and more seems to be kind of doing an ontological broadening that that i appreciate quite a bit mm-hmm. oh yeah very much the same vibes there um i
0: uh, yeah pr- pretty strong pickering vibes um from from this sort of thing um and i very much appreciated the, the 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 widening of scope right like um while i was reading this article or this this pair of articles the the kind of analogy that kept coming into my mind was like um the kind of on-screen off-screen distinction right like and uh, I think what Moore is kind of accusing everyone else of here is that they're only focusing on what's on screen, and wh- what he's saying is there's a lot of stuff happening off screen that you need to be paying attention to also. So he's he's widening the circle of consideration um, quite a bit, and in in a kind of quite hostile and iconoclastic sort of way, right? Like he's he's very quick to call out, um, you know, green thinking in quotes, and like. Uh, mainstream um, Anthropocene sort of discourse and like the mainstream of Marxist ecology and kind of throw them all under the bus. It's actually kind of, it's, 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 oh, it's an entertaining read uh, for that, um, for that aspect as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so um, Kyle, like what, what's, what, what are the ideas here that are being introduced at the top? Um, how, how's, how's he kicking this off?
2: Uh, so at the, at the top, we get a uh, kind of rundown of the article Um, You know, a notable thing about this article is that it kind of circles back on itself again and again and again. (laughs) Uh, So like there is a structure to the argument, but the the structure is deeply recursive. And so it does make it our job quite difficult. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, one thing that uh, Moore is focusing on here is critiquing the idea of the uh, Anthropocene. Uh, so the Anthropocene, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this concept because it's got a lot of popular purchase uh, and more more in this article outlines the different meanings of the Anthropocene. Um, but the, the the typical ones that we think about are, uh, first of all, the geological meaning of the term. Uh, so this is an attempt by geologists to uh, date a geological period that um, represents the growth of humanity as like the primary influence on geological development. So like, you know, we have all this geological history and then suddenly in geological time, uh, there is this blip where humans begin to substantially alter uh, the structure of geology Uh, So some people would date this to the uh, Industrial Revolution, the second Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. Uh, Other people would date it to the creation of the atom bomb. Um, But uh, basically, that doesn't matter in geological time because
1: (laughs) in (laughs) geological
2: time, that's effectively like the difference between
1: one and two microseconds. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I was I was going to say that it also it's it's interesting that um, or, or what made the Anthropocene such I think uh, as as Moore says such a hot topic right It was it was, it was the idea of using uh, geological epochs epochs to date at a time in which massive earth wide climactic shifts um, and ecosystem uh, shifts and and real you know, huge, huge changes, um, in how the earth systems operate or however you want to phrase it, um, are not based on stuff like, uh, the fundamental driver isn't something like, you know, the distance of the earth to the sun in its long rotation, or it's not, you know, or, or, or a series of, uh, of, um, uh, volcanic activity or, or, or all these sorts of things that, that, uh, we, you know, geologists were used to thinking of massive changes in how uh, the earth's climactic systems and, 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 and uh, uh, operated. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's very um, shocking uh, to our understanding of reality. Right. Like that, like, you know, there's a sort of, Ontological separation between geological time and historical time that we're used to assuming. Uh, and the Anthropocene co- collapses these two uh, timelines together. Uh, and so it, it has a lot of kind of impact because of that. Uh, and the, the well, to, to take up that thread, uh, the the impact that it has, uh, there is the, the popular understanding of the Anthropocene, uh, which is, you know, connected to the geological understanding, but but considerably removed to, from it. Uh, this is the kind of Anthropocene that you know, you know, singers write about in songs, or or we talk about in the in the popular press, uh, or chat about you know on, in the everyday, and that is this idea of a kind of a climate apocalypse, right? That we have. We have created uh, such an impact, you know, it largely connected to atmospheric climate change, right? Uh, anthropogenic climate change, um, that and like just other human systems, uh, they they become so powerful and uh, so out of control uh, that uh, we are barreling towards an ecological collapse um and and the, the very you know mass extinction and the, the very uh conditions for the survival of humanity are, are mm-hmm. uh, at stake
0: yeah and like and it's it more really takes issue with the we here and framing it as humans in general um because it erases the difference among humans such as you know class being an obvious one um and it kind of just like it it reduces to this kind of in, the, in in Moore's way of thinking with this, it, it reduces to this kind of bullshit narrative of like, oh, nature was pristine and harmonious, and then humans decided to be bad, and then things got bad. But like, it's it's humans as an entire group who are responsible for this. It's 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 kind of a one dimensional, uh, very one dimensional framing, and. Um, part of what we was trying to do here is to shift us onto an understanding of this being the capitalocene. Instead, it's, it's really capital as a particular historical system, a particular system of human organization that is causing these problems, not humanity or, or Anthropos, um, in general. Um, and that's, uh, it, it, you know, it's a good point. <laughs> it's a very
1: good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's worthwhile noting that, 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 insight um it is an insight that some of the other kind of green marxists have critiqued the anthropocene concept from um but they but they've generally continued to work with within the concept or or try to reform or reframe the concept whereas whereas uh more kind of throws it out Entirely and brings in this neologism, right? Uh, say like we need to, we need to be, and I think there's maybe it's an, a, a to a certain extent might even be like an element of political praxis to a bit, right? Like the idea that that the Anthropocene is so um, is 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 has gained such widespread and kind of a critical popular understanding. Um, that we need to uh, you know completely replace the term to make any any sense of this stuff.
0: Yeah. And and his 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 prime worry, or one of his prime worries, because he seems to be worried about a lot of stuff, um, but one of them is that like the Anthropocene, when it's moved into the register of political discourse and political action, kind of immediately suggests a Malthusianism. Like as it's gonna kind of like, well, if people are the problem, then very clearly we're gonna to have to get rid of some of the people. Hey, eh? you know, who's with me? Um that sort of shit. Um so like it should Shifting the emphasis onto the kind of inhuman, like Landian system of capital as a as a sort of like you know in inhuman presence that orders the biosphere um, is a it's a it's a kind of a strategic move to uh, um,
2: you know diffuse some of this uh, this this problem, right? Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a deep hostility and war to the idea of any kind of Malthusianism and. That obviously comes out of the Marxist tradition, Marxist critique of Malthus. Um, And it's a very significant question uh, because there is fundamentally something Malthusian Malthusian about uh, the Anthropocene concept, right? It it, it does rely very heavily on this idea of natural limits. um, And... It kind of suggests two ways forward, right? Is one is we reconceptualize the problem in Marxist terms, which view limits as relative, um, and the other way is to say, well, actually, Marx was right about Malthus in his time, but Malthus was right about the general proposition uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. The, the the framework that Malthus developed. Is actually applicable to this question of ecological limits that we are facing today. Um, so, so those are really two ways forward, and and uh, Moore uh, takes the first route. Right, he's going to try to relativize that problem to the problematics of capitalism. Yeah. Um, and the, the 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 problematics of um, he kind of he
0: kind of zooms way out to like even just the the kind of culture and like scientific discourse and like practices and knowledges that have come along with the development of capitalism because his his kind of in this essay this first essay he, is like it's split into kind of two parts he's, he's first taking aim at the. Um, human slash nature binary, like this kind of like um, Cartesianism, and then secondly, he's going to work on like the periodization of the Anthropocene. Uh, but this this initial part is all about how, um, you know, we, we it, well, he he kind of starts with it through like I mean, this Anthropocene stuff kind of ends up recapitulating some of the problem that has generated. Like it's the stuff that has generated the problem in the first place, in that we view humanity and society as being separate from nature. Um, so so, Kyle, what, how's how's he arguing this? What's because this is all fairly long and kind of involved, but uh, it's about dualism, right? Like it's um, like like our old friend Pickering, right?
2: Yeah. So he uh, he has a big hate on for Descartes. He do um, like me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the you know uh, uh, the Cartesian dualism is uh, one of his major uh, points of attack. Uh, so. Um, he first locates this in the Anthropocene concept because he's saying, well, it separates humanity from the web of life. The web of life is a really key term uh, for more. Um, And he says that it uh, preconceptualizes humanity and nature as separate first, connected second. Um, And this fits into the kind of usual account of modernity where it's like, yeah, humanity has developed a new relation to nature, an alienation from nature, um, and we, we exist in human history and interact with natural history. Um, these, are, these are separated streams of temporality um, and, and spatiality. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a number of kind of like points that he's going to bring up here uh, but I, I think one that, that we, we do need to bring up, first of all, is that um, when we talk about society, uh, you know, so this is this is the term that Moore uses to describe what we would usually call humanity. Um, it excludes a, a large portion of humanity. Right. So so it's it's society and nature. So society in this kind of Cartesian dualist framework is basically the people who have value. Mhm. The people who count. The people who count, yeah. So this would be uh white men um this would be you know uh especially uh European white men um but even within Europe, like you can't restrict it to that, right? Because the Irish would not be considered members of society at mm-hmm. the time that the race, race concepts were first uh, developed, uh, and it essentially is this this sphere within which there is a certain level of respect and accord uh, that is that is accounted to people or afforded to people uh, outside of that you have the vast majority of humanity who are lumped in with the rest of what is called nature. Um, And nature is the thing that exists to be ruled and exploited and categorized. Um, And uh, generally speaking, this is for the purposes of capital accumulation. Um, uh, yeah. So that, those just just to clarify that point that that uh, when uh, Moore is talking about humanity and nature, he's really more focused on the society and nature uh, distinction uh, because he's he's acknowledging the the differentiation among humanity, and that is one of his main criticisms mm-hmm. of the Anthropocene is it says, oh no, like all humans uh, are responsible for this phenomenon.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Yeah, so I'm only going to add this because it's just something that doesn't come. And I mentioned it briefly, and I I wrote in the notes um, doesn't come through in uh, Moore's uh, arguments against some of the people that that uh, he's he's kind of trying to. uh, critique uh, as other kind of green, green Marxists or whatever, or that he thinks are implicating too much green thought. Um, certainly in terms of the, when he talks around uh, with, uh, Andrea's mom or Ian Angus, um, those are people, it, sh- it should be noted. Those are people who were making the same arguments about the Anthropocene, mm. mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, that is, mm-hmm. that is that I think that he is, re- so, cause I, my, my, my take on on, on more here is that he's doing all this really incredible work. Um, some of, some of the fights he's picking are really excellent, and needed to be done. Some of them I'm like, it's not always entirely clear. And, and so definitely to the extent that you know, like so for instance, um, in Mom's Fossil Capital, one of his main arguments is that uh, why the why the Anthropocene has to be problematized is because it wasn't humanity that dug up all of this coal and set up um, empires around the world, and then th- thought of coal as a, a as a use value to uh, produce ex- uh, accumulation, it was like white colonial Europeans and early capitalists, right? But what, but what more I think is very much is saying, and I don't think he's super direct about it, but I think it's a fair a fair point. I, I think is that this concept is so as- associated with the idea of the anthropos uh, uh, that um, we're, we're really better off just just jettisoning it as, as opposed to as opposed to um, using the term. We should just we need a new we need a new term.
0: Yeah and like right. I
1: mean more even
0: like he's um he frames it and it happens to be a framing I pretty much agree with right that like this is a derangement of European thought that has taken on like planetary scale consequences. Um, that th- this is that th- there is something bizarre in the way that Descartes and these these other shitheads were thinking that caught on and was integrated into power circuits as a useful kind of like tool of domination, a kind of legitimation narrative for domination, and that 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 then bootstraps into a feedback loop that takes over the entire fucking world. Um, That's right. Yeah. And he's and th- his he's kind of taking aim at his his like uh you know um peers i guess here because um recapitulating the anthropocene sort of thing is just kind of for him like just embedded in the same circuit of thought that generated the problem in the first place um cuz uh, without that it, it does seem like he's kind of like it, it, from reading this and from reading the responses i was struck by this thought that like hey these guys seem to kind of pretty much entirely agree with each other what the fuck is the beef um but there does seem to be a kind of conceptual, like a very high level conceptual shift that Moore is trying to get to. Um, that uh, that it, it feels like some of his respondents aren't really fully grasping whatever. But. Um
1: yeah. Or, or maybe not engaging honestly with, yeah, it too, yeah. right? I think that's I think I think there's a certain amount of academic ego, like uh, like they're not you know um, not not necessarily arguing on his terms, you know, uh, uh, switch uh, uh, and um, maybe often switching to ad hominem and kind of also these interesting guilt by association uh, uh, tactics, right? That we would we'll talk about in another uh, recording, right? Um, but without a doubt, he's yeah, he's just the notion of. Like there's a whole bunch of th- I, when I was reading this, uh, I was like, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of classical uh, European, yeah, even liberal um, and Enlightenment thought that you could uh, make analogous to the, the type of uh, Cartesian dualism that he's critiquing. Like, I was really thinking, for instance, of like you know Locke's theory of property, right? It's, oh yeah, yeah absolutely oh, yeah. right. It's just like okay, you're you're not really human. Um, And you can't really own property unless you're making improvements on the property, which actually means subjecting the land and water and the territory you live on to the capitalist law of value. Um, And if you're not doing that, you, you are relegated to... The nature category. You're not relegated to the category of of humans with a civilization who have rights and deserve respect, and who should you know not be uh, you know exterminated or 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 robbed or or you know uh, enslaved in uh, silver mines in Peru, right? Yeah.
0: So this it's a it's a derangement that's like co-emergent with the new kind of economic categories of value and such, right? Like it's 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 that's right, it's, yeah. it's 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 a it, it's kind of a the thing I said earlier of it being a, a weird idea that then gets picked up by power is definitely the wrong way to frame it. This is a thing that develops with these like they're they're co-evolving um, with each other, um, and it's it's all that, it's that kind of dualism of like splitting because like in the, in in the Cartesian sense it's like the mind as a separate kind of like agent subject and which motivates action in an otherwise inanimate body. And then that same thing is then replicated at a different scale with like, well, you know, white men are the agent subject which motivate uh, motion in an otherwise inanimate society. And then, well, it's it's the, whatever, the society abstraction or the capital abstraction is the agent subject which motivates action in a uh, otherwise uh, inanimate nature and so on. Like there's this kind of rings and rings of like, Uh, privilege and stratification And each of these things borrows from the other and, like, gets legitimacy from the other. So, like, the rationalist kind of philosophy of Descartes gets its legitimacy, or, like, say, Locke, right? The the philosophy gets its legitimation in the economics, and the economics gets its legitimation in the philosophy. And it's just this horrendous, like, feedback
2: circuit um, that stampedes across the entire fucking planet then. Um, Yeah, and when Bob was bringing up uh, Locke's theories uh, about, um, you know, who deserves property? Um, it's uh, we're going to get into more in this in this article. Uh, what exactly is meant by improvement uh, by someone like Locke, right? And how the uh, techniques of capitalism uh, formulate improvement as an idea. Um, and how that is a break with feudal notions of, of the relationship to the land. So going ahead, uh, we start out with this section uh, on humanity, human exceptionalism, and the anthropos. Uh, one of the main points that um, was worth talking about here was this idea of human exceptionalism in the social sciences. Um, so we've already talked about this idea of society, um, and I just kind of wanted to you know throw this to you, Bob, a little bit because as as an instructor of sociology. Like, how does this idea really strike you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first I should say is that I uh, I mostly play a sociologist on TV. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't I wasn't trained as such, right? I'm just kind of i in the department, but but I have been very influenced by sociological thought. Um, uh, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, I would say that. Uh, I mean, I'm in a kind of weird uh, little corner of the world that is extremely in where, where some of the only radical politics that that, for instance, my students and and a lot of the uh, faculty are, are are the most engaged with would would be stuff oriented around kind of indigenous rights and decolonization and 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 mm-hmm. uh, rethinking indigenous worldviews and then also ecological um, uh, uh, politics and environmental politics and so certainly from my little. Weird corner. There's definitely, I think, an a, an interest, a, a significant interest in thinking through um, the like, or, or or deconstructing, or or kind of fucking with, right, the traditional sociological understanding of what society is, right, and how our our studies should just completely orient around that. Um, I don't know how, and and doing that through, you know, new, you know, they're all reading new materialism. Um, they're all interested in Latour, right, um, and so so. There's certainly, from that perspective, there seems to be a signal shift, right? On the other hand, there's plenty of other stuff I can see uh, that's, that's much more maybe so-called traditional, um, a little more staid, a little bit less integrated in that politics that I think would absolutely, uh, you know, the, the dominant position traditionally would have been the one that Moore is criticizing. Right. And maybe maybe hasn't gone far enough. Um, but but I guess it's just I'm in this li- weird little corner of the world where where these things are quite um, uh, actively being being discussed because of the centrality of green thought mm-hmm. um, uh, to uh, out, out, out here and also because of the way that. That um, green thinking and green politics has increasingly become interrelated with questions of indigenous ontologies out here in the west coast of Canada or Turtle Island, if you prefer. Um, and 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 that's actually not now a powder keg, as 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 Kyle Kyle knows in terms of what's been going on in our politics the last uh, few uh, uh, well, really, few years, but but especially a few months. So 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 it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of this. I think this is an, a good time. To be bringing these types of discussions, at least from where the little corner of the world I, I'm in, um, to, to the table. Um, because definitely the students I was teaching last year, I didn't, I didn't bring them more. Maybe I will in the future. I, I brought them kind of, um, talked about foster. They read some mom and stuff like that. And certainly the notion that uh, breaking through the, the, the society nature dichotomy and deconstructing that and, and rethinking that um, is very attractive to them. Right. That's that's an attractive proposition to to my students, without any doubt. And and some of the professors,
0: because that's what he's calling for in this next section, then Green thought and the problem of dualism is like he's calling for a kind of reevaluation of this uh, traditional dualism. But uh, from what you're describing, it seems like we're, we're kind of on
1: track for that. That's quite nice, at least in in your corner of the world. Yeah. I might be pushing it a little further than it actually is. It's, it's certainly it's certainly discussion that's happening. I mean, I, now whether or not it is actually being integrated into all of the bedrock assumptions that people are working with, right? Like maybe not, right? Like, like I, you know, sometimes I say I do political ecology, but i basically a, a, a Gramscian, which would be on the society, the society side of the divide. My my supervise my grant supervisor is a Gramscian. We track oil, um, the power and and economic and cultural political power of the oil industry and gas industry in Canada. Um, I don't know how much political ecology we're actually doing, but we're certainly all reading this stuff, right? Like this is, this is absolutely, this is on the table at the moment, if you are doing the type of work we're doing and the places we're doing.
2: So it might be fair to say that like, it might be fair to say that for sociology these days, um, there is kind of a disciplinary background and a history that, that, that sociologists have inherited, um, Or political economists have inherited social scientists of various types, uh, but the ontological horizon does include these kinds of concerns. It's just reconciling that is an ongoing project that's quite, quite a lot of work
1: that sounds right to me and and again i don't want to overplay the extent to which that is the case in sociology or even sociology in, uh, in general or in my department but there but but there, but there is there are people taking on these ideas and who and who are being very influenced by more by the way like this is one of the most influent, influential attempts to think through this stuff um, and uh, no one's no one's unaware of what this guy's talking about over the last 6 years right like who's if you're doing anything like political ecology if you're talking about capitalism and 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 uh, and uh, environmental degradation and and that sort of stuff. You are um, you're probably dealing with this, especially if you have any Marxist inclinations, right? Because I think there's an attraction for people to find something that is compatible with aspects of their Marxist thinking um, that does not necessarily uh, reject it entirely, right? That does not, you know. And so that's so that's very attractive to, to some people, and including myself. Like that's why I'm, I'm very interested in this work. You know?
0: Yeah. So. I think one of the, one of the, I think it's around this section then that uh, more brings us to um, uh, one of the kind of main little threads that he's going to keep picking up all through this. That like um, environment making has always been central to all human social activity and all all systems of organization, and that's just as true in the like the early bootstrapping phases of capitalism all the way through the Industrial Revolution, that um, it's not the case that nature is an external, pristine environment that is trod upon by human social systems, uh, that the, the systems actually actively cultivate their ideal environments. And that what we're kind of seeing at a very high level here is that the ideal environment for capital is uh, pathological right like it, it is it is ide- ideally wiping out its own environment like it's a it's a suicide death drive of of environment building um which is a a, 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 a an interesting and useful rephrasing of this kind of stuff because he's he's embedding capital as a system of power within the biosphere it's a it, like similar to how a um if you've ever had like a if you've ever had warts on your hand there's a virus that is Appropriating bits of your material and restructuring it to its own pleasing, and it so the virus is a force within your body that is restructuring its environment, and that's what capital is. Capital is a virus okay. that like makes warts basically out of out of the uh, out of the available materials um, that are that that are in the world, right? So it's 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 a deeply embedded process that is. You know, in and of the world, not something that is like transcendent outside of it. And that it's 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 a it's a hell of a reframing, right? Because it, um, it's and it's it's so reminiscent of of like Pickering's like cybernetic ontology, right? Like um of the the kind of cybernetic monism that we sort of see in Beer and um, these kinds of thinkers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I guess the way we can tie this back into the notes is this. This uh, insight into uh, environment making that the capital is doing um, really throws a wrench in uh, the idea of uh, sort of neo, neo-Malthusian population models, right? Because the, the main criticism of Malthusianism is it just like looks at these trends over time um, and kind of separates them out from the 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 nuance of the dynamics that feed into them or might affect them in the future uh, and just kind of extrapolates out right and it's like oh well here's the limit here's the trend these two point or this this line intersects with this point at this time and that goes to show that uh you know the carrying capacity of the earth is x uh the rate of utilization is y and this is the time where we're roughly going to run out and we're fucked. Um, where, and it, it, that's, it's like, well, who, what's driving this? Uh, people. People are driving this. Uh, but, you know, when you include the idea that, like, well, A, this shift in uh, ecology was really started um, in the, what, what uh, Moore calls the long 16th century. I think it's like a, what is that, like an origi term that he's is borrowing or something? Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, so in this long 16th century that starts in the 1450s um, is really where capitalist development kicks off. And we start to see these capitalist development uh, or capitalist forms of environment making uh, come online. Uh, so that that's what's driving it in the first place. You don't really see these kinds of uh really extreme Malthusian trends uh, uh, until that point. Um, And then there's also the question of, well, capital is producing its own environment. So are these Malthusian assumptions about what's possible really the limits that we are grappling with? Or or do we need to take into account um,
1: the internal dynamics of capitalism as well? yeah and i and i and i think there's a really interesting one area of and and we'll get I think this there's more as we, we go through the piece but uh, one thing that I think allows him to do that you know and actually one of the things I'm the, I get the most excited about based on my own background uh, is um, he does use both um, world systems analysis and something close something that looks a little bit almost like a much more radical uh, for, uh, um, and uh, form of um, of like uh, maybe even something like French regulation. Theory, right? Like talking about regimes, talking about ecological regimes, talking about various world. Like when he talks about world, uh, different world ecologies throughout capitalism over time, and capital, capitalist society, and capitalists reorganizing and imperialist reorganizing different world ecologies. You know, like bundles of nature and uh, society, and 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 remaking natural systems in order to in order to uh, you know create accumulation. Um, this is very much indebted to the notion of. Uh, you know, he's really indebted to Wallerstein, to Giovanni Arie, right, uh, of the just in terms of the idea that, you know, capitalism is capitalism, but it's not like it's the same over time. Like there's actually a kind of reorganization of it in different times and different places. It works slightly differently, but he's in- incorporating the idea of both making and abusing non-human nature into that uh, into that account in a way that does kind of cut against that Malthusian, I would argue cuts against that Malthusian point, because, you know, one way of thinking it is like, you know, you think about population today, it's not untrue that if uh, if the areas that, you know, Malthusian British royal family, like you've talked about in the uh, previous episodes, right, when they're upset about, oh my God, all these people in China, it's not actually untrue that in the in the contemporary ecological regime we all live the same way like that is apocalyptic right like it's not that's not just Malthusian nonsense but that is all oriented around the idea of just uncritically accepting this regime as some kind of this current ecological regime as some kind of trans historical thing in terms of how many humans can live on, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin basically. Right. It's about, it's about as, it's about as grounded as that philosophical debate, right? Like, Mm
0: -hmm. um, Yeah, it's it's like it's why I like this kind of framing here because it's very dynamic systems, um, dynamic historical systems and such. Like it's um it's a it's the kind of argument that I'm very vulnerable to. You know, it's like this this gels with the
2: with with my sort of interests certainly. Um, Um, so when we do talk about this this uh, whole conversation from a non-Malthusian Marxist perspective, the way that uh, Moore really approaches this is in terms of what he calls uh, cheap nature. Uh, So this is another really key term for Moore. Um, And essentially what Moore says is that um, capital accumulation is reliant upon cheap nature. Uh, these are the unpaid natural factors, or human factors, or whatever uh, that are necessary to facilitate uh, capital, uh, capitalist production, um, a- a exchange, and, and so on. Uh, and what Moore points out is that the requirement of cheap nature is. All, it always vastly outstrips the real terms of the capitalist economy, right? So, um, you know, if you can, if you look at, commodity production, wage labor, all that kind of stuff that would be accounted for within the normal operation of the capitalist system. And then you compare that with estimates of the value of, say, you know, uh, housework uh, or reproductive labor of other kinds or uh, so-called ecosystem services. Um, Those are like... like one category of those amounts to like seventy to eighty percent of world GDP. So the, the the
0: the whole premise here is that the 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 law of value within capitalist economy is premised on most things not being valued. That it's the um, the stuff that's again this this on screen off screen distinction. The stuff that's on screen, the like stuff that is valued in the commodity value form, that's the minority of all considerations most of the activity is off screen in unpaid unvalued activity both in terms of like nature in the sense of like oh look at all these like trees just lying here we're going to take them but also in like uh, gendered and racialized work and like oh you know and that's the thing right like people are pushed out of the circle of society into the circle of nature. So, like, women's reproductive work or, like, gendered care work is naturalised by this society. It's like, well, of course she has to stay home and look after the kids. It's natural. And that's the big trick here. That's the dualism. From from the the social-valued reality of of social value reality to the natural, unremarkable, push-it-off-screen stuff... That's the that's the big divide there, and that the point a, a large point he tries to get to as well is that if you just focus on what's on screen, like the stuff that is valued and tagged with money and stuff, you're missing most of the point. Um, when it comes to uh, economy and ecology,
1: <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't do that thing where he dismisses, as he calls it, the, the importance of wage exploitation and the cash nexus. Uh, he describes he describes that he describes the kind of you know exploitation of paid labor and all of the commodity um, production and realization of value by you know uh, of, of selling commodities in the market. All that is extremely important, but it's t- but it's they're like I- islands taking place in this the sea of unpaid work, which is. Uh, uh, which 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 Traditionally, uh, mar- not, both Marxists and um, both Marxists uh, uh, and uh, certainly uh, capitalist uh, bourgeois capitalist uh, economics and uh, neo- neoclassical economics uh, doesn't take seriously um, doesn't really uh, I think is important and, and it's worth definitely worthwhile noting just how influenced he is very openly influenced by social reproductive theory and social reproduction Marxist feminism. It's a hell of a hand grenade that he's throwing into the room here. <laughs> (laughs) No, it's really
2: great well yes so you know the the whole uh debate about uh like waged housework and social reproduction and all that kind of stuff is really like the one of the key background influences on uh moore's thought so yeah it it is it is definitely worth underscoring that that is like that feminist intervention is kind of like the gateway to seeing all of this other, uh, non-paid work that is happening. Uh, and so obviously this, this reframing of, of Marxist thinking is, is very important. Uh, and it, it, it has significant, um, implications for Marcus Marxist thinking as well, because it means that the struggle between, um, you know, proletarians and capitalists is kind of like center stage, but, very much in a m- enormous context beyond it, right? So, you know, like proletarians in the narrow sense, right, of people who are working uh, waged or salaried labor would, uh, like full-time, um, would be uh, a tiny, like would be included in society post, you know, say – 1900 um but they certainly do not comprise uh the entirety of the laboring uh mass of humanity and if when we look at this at an interspecies d- uh perspective it's a very small portion of the work that is being done
0: mm-hmm. uh
2: in as a whole yeah so i think then that kind of uh we we've mentioned this cheap nature thing but um
0: one of the important points here is that like the system of capitalism actively engages in a process of actively cheapening things that it's it's not just that these are like uh, to use marx and Engels' as terminology that they're like free gifts of nature they are made free by force and then appropriated so there's a kind of a dual process that capital as a kind of a, 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 an organizing system does it uh, has this this one prong of making things cheap uh, by making uh, you know, stuff in the world legible and available for its, its sort of appropriation. And then there's the secondary, like the second moment of actually appropriating things. So in order to, you know, in order to get to that moment where you uh, like, you know, uh, women are devalued or whatever, or, um, you know, slaves are devalued and, you know, all sorts of shit is devalued. You have to actually go through a process of devaluing them. And um, this is this is how capital is producing its environment. It is cheapening stuff and then seizing it uh, for its for its own use.
2: Yeah. Um, so this is uh, this forms what is what he calls a, a world praxis uh, for capital, um, and um, I think it, it's it's important t- to note the degree to which Moore actually thinks through this problem because he doesn't do the thing that a lot of kind of Marxian thinkers in the like 80s and 90s did of like gesturing to these kinds of limitations of the sort of like Marxist understanding of the world. uh, But then like not bothering to really integrate those ideas back into uh, Marxist uh, political economy. Um, He's like really specifically thinking about here How this idea of devaluing can interface with a Marxist conception of value and also um, how this cheap nature dynamic can interact with the falling rate of profit um in 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 a in a kind of uh dynamics or systemic way which i really appreciated because um there's a lot of like yeah it, it's like you know you actually put in the work to see how system a and system b can interface with each other instead of just hand waving uh and and i think that's something that's really a noteworthy contribution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, absolutely so we move on here uh, to look at the different ways that the Anthropocene is presented. Um, so we already mentioned the geological periodization, the popular conversation. Uh, another one that he, he brings up is the academic conversation across the two cultures. So this is uh, the, the, the culture of humanities and social sciences versus the culture of natural sciences right and you get these kind of boundary disputes uh between these different sides of the academy when talking about the anthropocene because the anthropocene is a concept that brings together these different parts of the academy to try to sum up to a real uh, an understanding of reality as a whole so like uh before i left japan i went to that uh uh, symposium on the Anthropocene in Kyoto, and it was literally about this attempt, <laughs> right? It was let's get oh, natural scientists and humanists to talk to each other about the Anthropocene. So, like this is this is definitely happening in the academy. Um, the problem that Moore points out is that natural scientists add social factors to their model, and then social scientists add nature to their model but it still maintains this dualist framework of nature plus society equals the whole. He calls it green algebra or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. green arithmetic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> green
2: algebra. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Uh, so, you know, the, the long and short of it here is that we want to develop an understanding that goes beyond these dualisms, uh, goes beyond kind of like bourgeois thinking here, and and we develop a understanding that is simultaneously uh you know aware of emergent phenomena like that capitalist virus thing you were talking about shane but also like meaningfully talks about how that is a phenomenon that operates in uh ecosystems right like not just saying it happens but like okay, how does it happen? Right? Where, like, like, how? Yeah, can exactly. we actually examine this scientifically instead of doing like a Heideggerian hand wave, right? Um, so that, that's, that's what we're trying to get at with getting past this two-culture uh, problematic.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's all uh, basically uh, correct, right? And, and I think it's, no, it's notable too because one of the places where... Um, Moore has been both the most uh, kind of like both provocative and also has gotten some of the most pushback, uh, you know, right or wrong, right, is his relationship to, you know, Earth system science. Right. I mean, and, and, and that is worthwhile mentioning. Right. Because uh, on one hand, he is very much deconstructing and attempting to reconstruct those binaries. Um, but then, but then the flip side of that is, and, and we'll talk about it uh, when we if we come back and talk about Wark and Foster and stuff like Wark makes you know notes that there you know there it, it, it's not entirely clear where he stands in terms of actually integrating. Um, uh, the science that is currently being done with his kind it, through his kind of dialectical approach, uh, and, 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 trying to reunite these two, uh, divergent spheres. Right. And so it's, so it's, so it's, that's, that, that's really an interesting, um, point, And to try to think that through as, as, as reading them is really, is really valuable. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we'll, we'll get into that more when we talk about the critiques of Moore, uh, I think, because, uh, There is a there's a whole level of uh, intellectual background and approach to this entire framework that needs to be discussed. But we'll have to get to that once we've presented it, because there's just too much here to uh, do both Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, So the, the final point about the Anthropocene is it gets to the origins of modernity conversation. Um, The origins of modernity conversation is pretty much the one that you were taught in high school history, uh, where you have, um, you know, industrial revolution take off. This produces a new relationship between humanity and nature, which defines modernity, where, you know, uh, we no longer operate in a world where our understanding is determined by our natural circumstances, we can operate in a um, abstracted non-natural reality that uh, allows us to transcend nature. Um, And so this is where you get things like, you know, uh, brutalist architecture, right? Uh, It's like, has no resemblance to natural forms, but we can conceive it in our minds and make it a reality in 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 a concrete practice. Yeah, um, there's um,
0: I think there's there's an interesting sort of thing here that they picks out that, like, I mean, yeah, as it said, it's it's about the question of where do you pick the origin for this? Like, where where do you plant the flag as for where things start to go wrong? And w- what he critiques here in this kind of like centering things around the year eighteen hundred or so is it's a kind of a consequentialist bias. It's 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 that we we look at the um you know the, the 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 record we look at the line go up you know the the hockey stick graph of of carbon emissions or whatever and that we we're looking at the consequences of the thing and that's where we we use that to plant the flag but what he's going to argue is that the problem begins a lot earlier it like in the, the 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 long 16th century and it's the by the time you get to the industrial revolution all these different interlocking processes are Coming to fruition and are ready to explode, and identifying the explosion as the kind of place to plant the flag is perhaps a mistake. It's he, he's he's asking us to look at everything that comes before the explosion.
1: Yeah, and and worthwhile again uh, to know as I as I mentioned before, right? I mean this this kind of um, periodizing that he and uh, uh, that uh, and this and this debate around periodizing that he's doing here, it is I, I would argue. Um, Completely analogous uh, to the debate between the world systems uh, analysts, which he is very clearly uh, inspired by directly, Wallerstein, Rihi, all that sort of stuff. Um, and as opposed to uh, a variety of forms of, of Marxism that are that are, have often been dominant, um, and so there, there's a real question between those debate. Like for instance, the political Marxist school of, of Brenner versus the world system school of uh, of Wallerstein and Enrique and Gunter Frank and all those folks. They have a real big um, they, these long standing debates over when capitalism actually starts, which which also it, it implies a debate. Um, uh, and uh, around what makes capitalism capitalism. And so more is taking a longer view than the usual idea that changing property relations plus industrialism in, let's say, 18th century England um, uh, marks that shift and, and Bringing it back to what, you know, how Wallerstein and Samira Min and world systems and all these world systems analysis and Ariki has probably done the most, I, I would argue, one of the more sophisticated versions of this. It's like, actually, you need to go back to like the 1500s. Even fourteen hundreds, Italian city states, Spanish Empire. There's a whole series of um, of uh, shifts in s- uh, s- uh, political economies oriented around commodity co- commodity production for the production of an emergent world market that is defended and created by militaristic empires and so on. Uh, that he is very uh, clearly inserting himself into, which I think is really, as someone who's into that material, I think is quite, quite exciting. You know, like it's really very different from the story you you usually get from people that have been thinking through Marxism and ecology who tend to, um, look to the, the, the more main, maybe more mainstream. Oh, it's, uh, you know, when, when England had factories, right?
2: Yeah. So, um, uh, listeners who have like, you know, listened in on uh, Swampside or Alpha to Omega, from Alpha to Omega on, on the network, uh, you've probably heard this debate uh, described as the Brenner debate. Um, uh, and uh, that, that's what Bob just described is really the contours of what that debate was. Um, and what I think we see more do here that is interesting is that, yes, he takes that world systems approach However, one of the main points of evidence he uses to demonstrate uh, that the the pattern of capitalism uh, extends far beyond, like up uh, back to the uh, 1540s or sorry 1450s uh, is uh, that the ecological um, patterns that capitalism creates and are recognizable throughout its history actually date back to that time. If you do a strict sort of like carbon accounting approach um, and, and, and take that kind of consequentialist approach, you can see like you you miss that. You miss the deforestation. You miss the remaking of landscapes. Uh, you miss the uh, mobilization of populations. Um That are all characteristic of capitalist development and which actually do date back to that time. So it's not just looking at finance or production exclusively. It's also tying that into uh, patterns of uh, world making um, that we we see in uh,
1: those times. I was going to say, and of course, when, when he talks world ecology, he's not saying what most people, uh, most lay people would think of as the world, right? And so, most people, when you hear the world, uh, you think planet, maybe, or earth, or it's everything that exists. Um, in this, in this uh, actual s- tradition, actually, mostly out of sociology, right? The world systems analysis is generally considered quite sociological. A world is actually just a, um, a, uni- like a unified division of labor, Right? Like, it's a unified division of labor. And what makes a world is the fact that uh, you might not even think that you are. What makes a world economy, for instance, in this in that model of thinking, is that you might not think that you're connected um, to the uh, person uh, making your phone in in, in uh, uh, China. But in fact, you are. You are part of a world system that that is is a, is a, is a large integrated system in which all these moving parts are connected, even if you don't see it, right? And so he's pointing that to the ecology that, that, you know, capitalists in European empires, were not just making uh, the world as in a series of trade and, 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 and using state power to stitch together colonies and an empire, but they're remaking the world as in, you know, they're remaking the, the non-human nature, right? They're, re- they're building a, a, a nature or a natural regime um, to, to match that uh, expanding um, kind of Euro-capitalist empire, right, that unified economic, political, economic, and social system that, that that European colonialism was was trying to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think here we can
2: jump forward to the Kirkusian revolution, because we've covered the stuff in the previous section. Um, uh, so the This next section we're talking about here is back on the Cartesian revolution as we said, this is a recursive argument, so <laughs> <laughs> these things come up again and again uh if every goddamn paragraph paragraph contains the entire
0: argument it's like a fucking hologram. it's really weird <laughs> yes yeah, these
2: these these fucking Hegelians uh-huh. man they're just they're just uh <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh so um. Yeah, so this section kind of digs into some more depth as to what this Cartesian revolution was about. Uh, Obviously, we know it was used in a kind of world-making, a world praxis, uh, but what was it really uh, specifically? Um, So one thing that he points out is that um, this Cartesian revolution reified relationships into entities. Um, So energy, matter, people, ideas... They cease to be relations and become uh, substances. Um, And so, you know, this is, yeah, this is like used to uh, attack sort of representations of climate science that that substantialize um, these ecological crises into uh, particular like hockey stick graphs of CO2 going up. We've kind of talked about this before on the show, yeah. right? Like, with Tina. Overemphasizing CO2 is a reification of a relational problem. Right. Um, so the second point is that uh, it substitutes an either or logic, a binary logic, uh, for the logic of both and. Um, so we have. You are nature or you are society rather than you are a society in nature, right? Um, And to give a more sort of like concrete understanding of what this means, um, in feudalism, everything was kind of defined according to obligations and relationships between people. Um, And one part of the kind of capitalist world making that broke apart feudal ties um, was to substantialize all of these things into discrete quanta so it's it's not like oh i am a peasant on the land of such and such and we have this like either both unspoken and written agreement as to what we owe each other it's just like lord so-and-so owns this much land and I happen to inhabit that land, and there's a there's a boundary that can be defined geometrically as to my um, my uh, space in it, uh, and so that, this kind of breaking up uh, control over nature and the establishment of the nature society divide are all parts of this. Um, final one uh, is uh, ocular centrism, which is basically just taking the idea of perspective um of of vision and privileging that as a type of knowledge mm-hmm. and a way of seeing the world it's in um, ob- observers are special like um yeah and the the, the,
1: the, the yes. mind is an
0: observer um and the everything else is a thing that is observed and you get that kind of
2: subject object distinction and and we see this in the revolution in visual art right you have the multi perspectival uh, medieval form of presentation of society, which is about um, it's not about presenting a unified point of view. It's about presenting relationships between people. Um, and then when we have the Renaissance and we have the development of new forms of art, it's all about a central perspective that matches up to the human way of seeing things. Um, and And this is, you know, part of land surveying, and all that kind of stuff uh, of of structuring the world in a visual way, and and then
0: th- that's that's co-emergent with the private property stuff, right? Because because like the it's it's hard to conceptualize what private that, that kind of the, our modern mode of private property would even mean without that kind of ocular surveying uh, binary distinction uh, control over nature sort of stuff being um, there and available as concepts to 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 apply, right? Like. Um, it's yeah, the, the partition, the geometric partitioning
2: of, of, of land into binary distinctions um, emerges out of that. Yeah. Even in the, the second article, he talks about the Mercator projection um, and how that was specifically tailored as opposed to a globe to be amenable uh, to human sight for the purposes of navigation And uh, like, you know, mapping of the world for the purposes of capital, basically, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So that's that's a pretty good example he brings up.
1: Yeah. And for him, too, like this way, these different ways of seeing the world, they're not just like epistemic shifts. That, that exists at some philosophical level, like he thinks of them as soft technologies and techniques of empire building, which itself is involves nature building and world building. So, you know, I mean, there's, uh, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you need, like, things, so in his mind, you know, like yeah, sure. Like in the 1800s, development of a steam engine fundamentally important to the development of industrial capitalism. There's no doubt about that. But in his mind, you know, so is if you want to take the longer view, right? Like, and and and, uh, you know, so is uh, what we think of as so-called soft technology. So is so is cartography, right? And map making, navigation, and. Botany, anything that allows you to quantify and understand, um, uh, uh, to, to, to think through all of these various, you know, plants, animals, uh, and uh, and, sh- and human animals that that uh, the uh, that the. Cap- the capitalists and the, uh, you know, uh, colonial states that are bankrolling these, uh, and integrating these sorts of, these sorts of new knowledge systems and technologies need in order to get access to the cheap nature, both, both that get access to it conceptually, right? Like count it, quantify it, map it. Um, and then, and then getting access to it, like actually get on a fucking boat. Right. And like actually go there, <laughs> yeah, go yeah. there, yeah. And yeah. shoot some people and get their shit. Uh
2: huh.
1: It, 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 allows
2: capital, to divide up nature into things that are resources and to make use of them. To things that can be valued.
0: Um, it's very interesting to me that, um, and I think it's very, it's very interesting and very compelling to me that he is asking us to take seriously um, kind of culture and mental activity and uh, conceptual tools like soft techniques as material forces in the world not as some bullshit fucking idealism that like, you know, it, 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 a crude way of putting this would be that like ideas matter or ideas are matter. <laughs> you know that the, 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 Like ideas are, are electrochemical processes that are distributed across a network of agents that are aligned along an axis towards the plunder of some, some other place. You know, that's like these, the, the, this really is a material force. Like this, this shit
2: matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, sums it up as the rise of private property was at once material, political, and symbolic. Uh, so this brings him to uh, one of his most important concepts, which is the idea of the four cheaps. So we talked about cheap nature, and these are the four principal types of cheap nature. Uh, so we have food, labor, energy, and raw materials. Um, And these are cheap to the degree that their reproduction costs can largely be kept off the books or in the case of mineral deposits extracted at well below the prevailing extraction costs. Um, So that, you know, there is a constant tendency for these four cheaps to become expensive uh, as a result of expanding capital accumulation. Um, And... Therefore, capital is constantly seeking new ways to find new resource frontiers that will uh, re-cheapen these four cheaps. Um, So, you know, uh, I guess, like for myself, living here in Alberta, we where the you know there is a current uh, economic and political crisis in this province uh, because. The energy being produced here is no longer uh, <laughs> extracted at well below the prevailing extraction costs, and, and arguably um,
1: never was. If you know anything about well, pre- well, yeah.
2: So the thing is, the prevailing extraction costs, right? So in times of war, uh, when oil became expe- especially expensive, um, then it was you know cheap. But basically, is a marginal source of, of oil, all right? Complex, it's it, dynamic. That's right. right? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, well, and I guess what I was getting at there too is, to anyone who knows about uh, any listeners who know about you know the Alberta Tar Sands, the Canadian Tar Sands, right? Is that um, it? Also, is it not only does it depend on yeah, like world high oil prices and stuff to be profitable because it's so it's so hard to get the bitumen and it's so hard to refine it and move it. It just takes a lot of energy. Uh, but also, you need uh, and this does I think dovetail with with more right very well as you say, Kyle. Uh, you know, it took uh, um, massive amounts of state power to subsidize the R&D, to subsidize the infrastructure, to uh, get uh, tax rates that were so incredibly low that it would attract international capital for what was essentially a pretty low-grade uh, resource, essentially give away the farm, and also to, you know, uh, uh, to find various ways of either dominating and, and eventually uh, attempting to co-opt uh, Indigenous people um, who lived in what what environmental justice of, uh, activists and academics would call the sacrifice zones of development. Right. Um, and so that, that involves, it involves, and I think that's why it works so well with Moore's, uh, point is that huge amounts of state power are needed consistently to make that profitable for capital. Including like offloading many of the costs, including the economic costs of subsidizing the technology and the resource, um, and 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 you know charging no tax and whatever, you know, uh, gaining access to indigenous territory. Um, the, the state is is just absolutely crucial there. These things that we think of as as non as some orthodox Marxists might think too much of as non economic processes. No state building is absolutely state power is is crucial to keeping the nature cheap, and that and that's broken down. That's now and and to to making you know
2: to making bitumen a resource in the first place, right? In the first place, yes,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the first syncrude crude plant uh, was a was a, was an Alberton state project, right? The first the first plant. To, it took them thirty years to figure out how to do that shit because private capital was never going to take that type of risk, right? Uh, to dick around with uh, uh, the, the bitumen in the sands until you can turn it into a commodifiable resource for thirty, you know, take thirty years and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, right? Um, That's something that the state can do. The state has the power to search out and and find and reorganize and produce these cheap natures, these four cheaps. Yeah.
2: And so uh, accordingly, uh, including colonization in the account of modernity is crucial. So the account that you learn in high school uh, that focuses on the Industrial Revolution um, and maybe Enlightenment thinking uh, tends to – uh, significantly downplay the importance of colonization, <laughs> I and would and would typically begin the account of modernity well
1: after 1450, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, very attractive if you want to if you want to stand for modernity, um, but also don't want to accept. Um, uh, its role in colonize very useful to like maybe move you know. Let's all really starts in late eighteen hundreds, right? You know, we don't want to think some, about some strongly motivated reasoning going
0: on in in, in yeah, the, in the yeah. mainstream, you know. Um, so like we get a, a kind of baffling rundown of the history of this sort of stuff um, through this uh, this fairly long chunk of the uh, the back of the essay, um, which is is fascinating and wonderful and really should be should be, like I, I do advise people to actually go read this. Um, he 's painting this picture of like the way that, the way that things shift around and like various kinds of land transformation put kind different kinds of pressures on the systems, and then stuff has to shift again and there 's this constant process of like cheapening a given nature like say the local forests and just flattening the fucking things and then oh shit they've run out we have to cheapen somewhere else's forests we got to go invade this place and take all their wood um and oh wait now now that we don't have any local wood we have to move shipbuilding over to the philippines because there's wood there we've cheapened that and it's it's just this this uh, uh, you know run on accumulative sort of process um and it's but it's a dynamic process that like where new resources are identified. Because um, like coal doesn't start out as a resource. It's just a fucking rock, you know? It takes a while for that to become a resource. It's only after you've burned up all your own forests that the coal suddenly starts to look attractive. Um, and that's an active process. That's not something that's ever really given in nature. It's the Im- embeddedness of these systems within the biosphere that gives it this dynamic
2: kind of on-running character. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... There's a, there's a few points that sort of stood out for me in this historical account that were quite interesting. Um, you know, one of them was that deforestation. Uh, you know, like <laughs> just unbelievable deforestation of the area around the Baltic, um, and and it's like, oh wow, yeah, like this this kind of uh, deforestation is something that that more uh, states is. Um, it kind of necessarily accompanies every wave of uh, in- intensified capital accumulation. So currently, you know, we are seeing the Amazon just being utterly destroyed by Bolsonaro's uh, goons because it's the only forest left. <laughs> like, what the fuck else are they gonna do? Yeah, well, yeah, and it's, it's like it's like okay, like this is not an aberration. This is characteristic of every wave of capitalist accumulation going back to the 15th century. But if you only focus on the 18, 1800s onwards, you would miss that
1: entirely, right? Yeah. And in, f- in fact, for me, like, I. I I think my first introduction to even any sort of world system, in the, you know in this case world ecology, but world system approach, I, uh, I got some real kind of some sort of good feels because uh, I approached that stuff originally when I was a teenager through. Um, Uh, Eduardo Galeano's Open Veins of Latin America. I don't know if either of you guys have read that book. It's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty fab book. It's just kind of like he he was a, Galliano was like a Marxist, I think Uruguayan journalist who kind of had to flee the fascist coups of like the seventies and stuff and fled to Mexico. And he wrote before uh, he wrote these books, Really gorgeous, uh, beautiful to read accounts of European colonialism in what became Latin America. And one of the things that really stood out at the time was very much what Moore was talking about. It's it's this. It was this nature building. It was like it wasn't just that you went in and got the got the wood. It wasn't just that you went in and got uh, the opal or the guano or whatever the case may be. It was that that if Spanish colonialism. Um, which would generally be left out of the story, if, if, if as you say, Shane, if you were talking about the 1800s on. Um, really, like remade entire water and land systems, right? You, you know, areas that were used for certain types of traditional or whatever you want to call it, pre-Hispanic agricultural production were reworked. People were booted off the land. They turned them into these gigantic haciendas, these gigantic mega farms of their time. Um, this also allowed them to, you know, push as as more notes push uh, indigenous. Uh, campesinos or whatever, a peasant class off of the land, which allowed them to be free to work in the silver mine or whatever, right? Um, in incredibly, <laughs> in incredibly, incredibly brutal conditions. Uh-huh. And so I got, I was just saying that as a, sorry to rant, but I got real good, in, intense feels reading this stuff because I'm like, oh my God, this is like, this is like going back and reading Open Veins of Latin America, which I highly recommend to Any, any, if any of uh, your listeners are interested in that part of the world because it's, you realize there's this whole longer tradition that Moore is engaging with that—that uh, that there has been debates with so-called orthodox Marxists or whatever you want to call it about. Oh, that stuff doesn't count, right? There's there's no factories. There's no very, there's no wage factories at that time. Some of the peasants are paid money. Some of them are just enslaved. Um, we don't want to think about that, right? Like, and Latin American scholars were really and, and and journalists and activists were really on the front wave of that shit in the 70s, saying like, "What are you talking about? That's not capitalist. That's not capitalism. That's not capitalist." Ex- exploitation or oppression uh, that's pre-capitalist uh, uh, exploitation and more is has no interest in that right more has no interest in that type of dichotomy uh, which i th- which i personally find very refreshing
2: yeah so he kind of he kind of sums this up as saying like uh de-peasantization proletarianization and agroecological change are entwined in every great expansion of the capitalist world ecology and you know, getting on to that second point you made, Bob, he says the, the growth of semi-proletarians is the norm. Uh, they're partially reliant on wage labor, right? So in the uh, so-called like neoliberal wave of capitalist accumulation, um, we saw this be the norm for like the bulk of the industrial proletariat uh, in China, Right. Uh, the sem- semi-proletarian status was the norm. You had, uh, you know, going to the factory for part of the year to work as a proletarian, and then part of the year you would go back to your village and uh, and behave as a peasant. Which
1: means which means the social reproduction costs are taken off the books of both capital and the state. Right? That's a, that makes your nature real cheap. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I remember when
2: I was uh, studying the history of capitalism in Japan, very much the same dynamic. And uh, one of the main breaks on uh, the explosion of, in, of capitalist growth in Japan was when the pool of semi-proletarians was exhausted and the population had become uh, fully proletarianized. Ooh. Why? Well, because one of the four cheaps had been reduced, right? Interesting. Okay. So you know, wh- one last thing I kind of wanted to uh, bring up about the historical account here uh, was that it focuses a lot on the history of the Dutch. <laughs> um, Absolute <laughs> bastards! And, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> the worst You know, my 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 great ancestors, the Dutch. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> they. Uh, <laughs> I had a I had a teacher once who was uh you know very influenced by world systems theory uh, at UBC um and uh he referred to the Dutch Republic as a an enterprise for the purposes
1: of uh piracy and slavery um, <laughs> yep notably one of the first stock markets too right so' those two things go to- <laughs> yes yes yeah so it <laughs> Which, of, which, of course, is is, is just a big uh, machine for piracy and slavery, right? And anyone knows anything about finance, right? It's just yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, uh, they they had the, the first bulls in uh, in uh, the, the whole world, uh, and um, in reading this account uh, by Moore, I, I came to appreciate in new and interesting ways. Uh, how much uh, my people Fucked over the mm-hmm. world <laughs> um, Even beyond the piracy And slavery That mm-hmm. I already knew about um, So I, I, I think there's Just a couple points That are really interesting there It's like one of them is Yeah, the the exploitation Of the Baltic region By the Dutch um, And especially the exploitation Of Poland as a breadbasket um, So, you know, uh, Dutch power in the sort of Hanseatic zone was very strong and um, they kind of used Poland as like a a realm of intensive agriculture for feeding the Republic so that the Dutch could become proletarianized, right? Uh, They could, they could actually work for wage labor uh, off the land instead of being stuck on the land. Um, And one really interesting point that comes out of this is that the, the land in Poland was exhausted by this, um, this demand, this intensive demand for grain. Um, and, you know, one of the main points that like, I was like, Oh, cool. was like, well, I don't know if it's cool, but <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is Fascinate, really interesting. Was that, yeah. You know, this was before industrial agriculture, this was organic agriculture. They just burned through all that shit like the the, the old-fashioned way. It's still it's still exhausted the land because it was um, what they did is they broke with the system of uh, crop rotation that was characteristic of feudal agriculture and just did a- intensive organic agriculture on the same land. Um, uh, so that that was like oh well that's that's really interesting to see that dynamic play out before industrial agriculture existed right. It's
0: very interesting to me as well because, like, um, when I was in school, like there was, I mean, they teach you all crop rotation shit, and then I like, think the the teacher was like, "Well, then in some times in some places people just didn't do it, and I guess they're fucking stupid or whatever." But this is no; it's they they were they were plundered, you know. <laughs> no,
2: was, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, if 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 your goal is not to, if you're not particularly worried about um what the uh what the um uh you know. Uh, how the soil is going to be and what the yield is going to be a hundred years from now because uh, the people who are investing in that and also using their military power and their mapping power and their shipbuilding or whatever it is um, to dominate that sort of that stuff, um, then it, 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 it's perfect. I mean, if you don't know anything about the idea that, well, eventually uh, you're going to have a widespread uh, biospheric collapse <laughs> in 500, 600 years, you don't care. Yeah. Do you think they knew? Do you think, do you think anyone just
0: sort of paused and was like, Huh. I guess if this keeps going, yeah, nah. Fuck it. <laughs> Just.
1: I mean, maybe they. I mean, I think it probably depends. But yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, though. I mean, I think what's even more important is that they have the incentive to not to not even find out. Yeah, you know, it's right?
0: it's a kind of a um, informational basilisk, right? That like, if you don't look at it, it can't harm you. Yeah,
1: yeah that's right. And your your ability to it, so long as you can access, you have the you believe you'll be able to access other. Um, agricultural land or other areas to deforest, uh, um, because you know, again, you exist as as the, the pinnacle of this world system, right? I'm you know, I'm like, well, we'll just go somewhere else, right? We'll just we'll get on the ships, we'll we'll map the, the quote. New world, you
0: know, <laughs> uh, well, whatever. And that's, and that's still, still with us in the, like, um, the fucking spacefaring fetish shit as well of like, oh, well, if we burn, if we burn this one out, we'll just colonize Mars. We'll, we'll get Elon Musk to, uh, yeah. yeah just that's, I was going to say it's
1: Musk, it's Musk logic. It's a very, it's a, it's a very musky form of, uh, thinking. Yeah. Um. Like, yeah. Good luck. <laughs>
0: so, as I said, a derangement of European thought. Yes, precisely. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh.
2: And and sort of picking up on that that vein. Um, you know, we often sort of just kind of casually note that Holland is this ridiculously engineered landscape, right? That it's you know it's it's partially underwater. Uh, it's you know it's so much like drainage and, and moving around of land and water and building seawalls and all this kind of stuff, right? But what this narrative really brings out is that all that stuff we talked about in the Cartesian Revolution, Holland was kind of like a laboratory for that. Like the remaking of nature in Holland to like one of the most extreme degrees on Earth kind of prefigured the project of capitalism around the world going forward. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting historical example that, again, is completely neglected by the normal uh, account of capitalism. It's, it's very Anglo-centric. Indeed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's the last... The, the last segment then is uh, of this essay is uh, towards a provisional synthesis, the origins of the Cap- capitalocene, um, in which he's kind of stitching he's kind of stitching it all together right that like um <clears throat> uh capitalism is deeply implicated in the obviously deeply implicated in the world uh, ecological crisis um but it's via this production of cheap natures that it has historically impinged well like it is not, not even impinged upon nature because that's too dualistic of thinking but has um has remade nature in its own weird image and then plundered it and then remade it again and then plundered it again in this this, this horrific um feedback loop um and, yeah, what else does he have here? He, he kind of definitely centers, like, the, the techniques of global appropriation, like the mapping, the um, the the, 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 the um, cadastral mapping, uh, and the technologies that allowed for long-distance seafaring and all this kind of stuff is all, all co-constitutive of all that sort of stuff. Um, it's a compelling, you know, it's a really compelling argument uh, in, in this essay. Super compelling.
1: And, and I, I really do think that history is... Uh like, even, even outside of thinking through what is the best theoretical framework to understand these issues, the history is absolutely masterful, right? Like, I think that is one thing that is going to be uh, – uh, make an impact for a – like – be even beyond thinking through the concepts or thinking through a non cartesian framework of, of understanding these things or uh, it really is spectacular right like I, I really loved reading i mean it was it's all quite depressing too but but it was exciting to read It you know, like I, I I'm
0: definitely going to go back and reread both these essays because I think like i mean it was it was a bit of a cram to get them done for the show but i think i, I would like to go back and pick over all of these little details um because there's a lot here and it's really good stuff
2: mm-hmm yeah the the last the last thing I wanted to mention in this section here is uh, this concept of the Great Frontier he brings up, um, which is uh, I think roughly analogous to the kind of uh, sacrifice zones concept that you were talking about, Bob. That's right. But mm-hmm. also of course includes like the the the, the settlement areas, right? Um, uh, And the great frontier is something that is both uh, a land frontier, a labor frontier, like in the sense of like, hey, look at all these people we can enslave. Um, Or, you know, look at all these peasants we could proletarianize. Just just rolling up and being like, hey, there's some nice plants you got here. You all ever heard of property?
0: (laughs) Well, you're going to hear a lot about it from here on out.
2: And, and and yeah, and, and, and exactly in that sense, it is also symbolic. It is scientific. Um, it is this kind of, uh, you know, it's it's the thing that when uh, when when Jean Luc Picard talks about space, the final frontier, uh, he's kind of gesturing towards the great frontier, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely, one hundred percent. And. Uh, I was I was reading this article at the same time that I was watching uh, uh, YouTuber uh, SB play uh, uh, Endless Legend, which is a Forex game, um, and it was like you you look at like the tech tree and like the world exploration and like the economic development in those games, and you're like, oh yeah, this is the Great Frontier. Forex games are games of the Great Frontier, which is something that's kind of obvious. But when you have a term like that, that kind of brings it all together in a framework like this, it gives you a little bit more of a, a, a precise uh, understanding of what's going on there, as opposed to using a framework like imperialism, colonialism, uh, uh, you know, militarism, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it really brings it all together.
0: Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we'll pick up part two of our discussion of the Capitalo scene. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, at GI unit Pod. we're on Facebook, we're on all the podcast apps, so like, rage and subscribe, all the usual stuff. If you go to patreon.com slash intellect unit, you can throw us a couple of bucks a month to support the show and to get access to our community discord. This show is a part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out some of our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampsite Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're really great shows and really great folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show.